those of you who are just checking it out, we welcome you and we're so glad you're there and so glad you're out there. We want to just honor you if you're part of our church and uh, elevate and we miss you. We want to bless you and uh, tell you that you are not forgotten and we're grateful for all that you are and all that Jesus is doing. And for those of you that are watching us that have never watched us before, we're really glad for you as well. And we believe God has something very special for you. Uh, we're doing a series on dreams. Wonderful, right? Dreams and visions. A lot of times everything's in a shutdown, everything's in a lockdown, everything's in a no-go. How do we get up and going again? We got to get up and going by having a vision, a dream, something for our future. That's to be something meaningful that's set in front of us and then we can be compelled towards the future. And so last week we did a designing a dream. So we got designer jeans And we got designer dreams. So last week's message was about how to design a dream and how to create what God, help create what God would have you to be and where God would have you to go and how to activate those dreams and those visions within your heart. And so a lot of that's on the message from last week. And this week, this week's kind of like a, a double down. So we're going to kind of split it in two. Uh, we're going to talk about discovering destiny. And then we're also going to talk about overcoming failures because one of the things that handicaps people um, moving into dreams or becoming who God would have them to be or doing what they're supposed to do is the issues of the past and their failures. And so what, the first thing I want to talk to you about is I want to talk to you about destiny. Destiny and dreams are two different things. So a dream is a desire. A dream is a, is a vision. You, you have this dream for your life, this, this thing out there that you kind of want. And then, uh, uh, or you have a vision of where you can be or where you should be. Those are dreams and visions. Destiny is something that you are compelled towards. There's a compellingness of your life. And as I was sharing in first service, that the compelling of destiny oftentimes doesn't line up with what you want. So a lot of times there's a conflict. So it's important to understand what destiny is. Destiny begins with the discovery of an intended sense of purpose. It begins with a curiosity, a longing, a must, a drive that compels you in a direction. In other words, you have a compellingness to work with music. You have a compellingness to work with people. You have a compelling, a compelling uh, drive to learn certain things. A lot of times that compelling drive, it correlates with destiny. But that compelling drive a lot of times doesn't line up with what you want. It doesn't. So it's important to understand that the drive of destiny oftentimes is not what you want to do. Does that make sense to anybody? I feel compelled to work with people. I don't want to work with people. But I feel compelled to work with people. I'm very good at it, but I don't want to do it. I feel compelled to work with machines or do this or do that, but I don't really want to. I want to do this. A lot of times that's where the, the conflict comes Whatever destiny, whatever that core is, whatever that drive is, whatever that compelling is, it has clarity at its core. So you have a clear sense of a direction or you have a clear sense of a compellingness. You, you may not understand it, but you're compelled. All right? I put it in this way, right? So I have a compellingness to teach the scripture. I was born to do this. I don't always want to do this. I'm going to put it in my context for you so you can understand it. And maybe you'll be able to relate this to some way in your life. All right? So God would call me and say, listen, this is what I want you to do. I fought it. I didn't want to do it. I had the wrong idea of what it was he was telling me. I had the wrong concept of what it was he was telling me. And I would just resist it. But yet over and over again, there was this compelling drive to do the very thing that he had put me on the earth to do. 
which is this. However, I didn't want to do it. It came naturally to me. It came easy to me, all the above. But I didn't want to do it because I wanted to do other things. I'm like, I want to build buildings. I want to real estate invest. I want to be a developer. I don't need to be that guy. So I had this inclination, this desire of my own to build things. Yet at the same time, I had this, long, this, this compelling clarity that I should teach the scriptures, that I should plant churches, that I should equip people, and I should do these things. But I didn't want to do it. What I failed to understand was that the very thing that I wanted to do, which was build, was actually coinciding into the thing that is actually my destiny, which is to do this. So I didn't understand that I could actually build a kingdom at the same time in serve, right? Does that make sense to you guys? Do you guys understanding what I'm talking about? A lot of times what you're compelled to do is not always what you want to do. And most of the time it comes with a misunderstanding of what you're, you're misunderstanding it or you're not seeing it clearly. But you have a compellingness. There are people that have different gifts, different strength, different abilities to do certain things, and they're compelled, but that compellingness doesn't always make sense to them. Thank you. I got one. That's all I need. I only need one. So, so that's, that's the point. So the compelling drive that you have, it doesn't always make sense to you. But you need to understand that that's part of your, your, your direction. I'll give you a quick example of what we're doing here. That makes absolutely no sense, but we're compelled to do it. We're working with churches, and we're working on putting together a church plant model around the world. Makes no sense. Makes no sense. It's just what we're compelled to do. If you look at it in the natural, it doesn't seem like it's anything that's even possible. Yet God says, this is what we want, I want you to do. And so we're driving into something that doesn't really match what we want necessarily, but it's what he wants. So that's the important thing. So when it comes to dreams, it comes to destiny, or it comes to destiny, there's going to be a compelling drive. Some of you, you have a compelling drive to... Like I said, to work with people. Some people have a, I want to build a business. I feel like this is what I'm supposed to do. You may not always understand it and you may not always agree with it. I'm going to give you, okay, I'm going to give you a story of a mathematician. Say, I don't do math on weekends, pastor. You know, no math allowed. All right, so don't worry. I'm going to help you with it. Right? So there's a mathematician, maybe some of you, a couple tech guys. One guy actually knew this guy because he's really into computers, but his name was Benoit Mandelbrot. Anybody ever heard of this dude named Ben? Well, oh, I got one guy over here. Yeah, so that's two. One in each service. Most people never heard of this guy, right? His name is Benoit Mandelbrot. And what, he, what, what is interesting about this guy, well, I'm going to show you. There's a documentary on him. Anybody ever heard of fractals? Fractal geometry? Yeah, well, there we got another fractal. He's the same guy. So don't worry. Don't feel dumb. Same guy that knew his name knew the fractal. So don't, don't feel... Don't feel like you're, you're left out. Uh, so he, create, he discovered uh, geometric shapes, geometric equations. He discovered something about mathematics that no one had ever discovered before. And what I want to show you about this guy's life in this brief time that I have is to show you that the decisions that he made in relationship to what he sensed in his heart. So I just watched this documentary on him. I've known about fractals for a long time, which doesn't mean anything, but nonetheless, the, I, I just watched a documentary on this guy's life, and everybody's like, oh, wow, look what he discovered. My question wasn't what he discovered. My question was, how did he get from there to there? How, how, what was the path? And if you, in the documentary, I started watching it, and I started seeing it. I was like, wow, this really coincides with what I'm trying to teach in, in relationship to destiny. So he makes this statement, right? So first of all, 
this guy accomplished a great deal. But what he comes from a really, really, really broken background. He was born in Poland. First World War happened. He lost everything. His family moves to France. Once they're in France, World War II happens, and then he eventually moves to the United States. So it wasn't like this guy was coming from the perfect world. When, he, when World, War II, World War I happened, he moved to France. His whole family were mathematicians. So it's important to understand. He comes from like this background of mathematics, Right? So it was already in his family. It was something. And he, he had an opportunity when he got to college to go to this specific college. There was the highest college in all of France at the time. It was a science school. And he said, if I went to that school, he said, my pathway to my future would be sure. I would have money. I would have a job. I would have all of the things that I ever wanted. But he didn't choose to go to that school. He chose to go to another school. And the reason that he did is he says this. He says, all my life, I had a sense or I had a longing to do something or to discover something no one had ever done before. So you see the longing? So he's got this compelling drive to to discover something or to do something that no one had ever done before. And what he begins to do is he begins all of his life choices become associated with that compelling drive. So he has a compelling drive to do something that no one had ever done before, to discover something that no one had ever discovered before in the field of mathematics or science in particular. So instead of going to the university that already had a rigid program established, he said, I would have had to follow their program. And he felt like he would be in a box and he wouldn't be able to do. So he said no to that, even though it was the most prestigious, the hardest to get into. And he chose a lesser school because the lesser school would allow him to experiment. He made a life choice that was out of step to what others would choose. Like his family thought he was crazy. His uncle was like a renowned mathematician. So his, his uncle's like, going, you're nuts, dude. Why, why are you going to that school? You know how hard it is to get into that school? And you're turning it down to go here? Because he was, he was not interested in what that school was offering. He was interested in following this compellingness that was on his heart. Right? So he made life choices that were out of step. But those life choices would eventually lead him to an amazing discovery. He then goes, he then graduates from school. By this time, he's now in the United States. He becomes a professor at Yale. And he said, at the time, I had, a, I had a wife and I had a kid. He said, I had all the money that I needed. I had a secure future. I had, there, everything was set for me. But he took a year sabbatical and he went and worked with IBM. Now, IBM at the time was not what IBM is today. This is the 50s. So he's working at Yale. He's a professor at Yale. He takes a year off and he goes and works at IBM. IBM was changing. So the founder of IBM Uh, was leaving and his son was taking over. So the son was taking over the business and the son was taking over the business and he was seeing that his father's, what his father's company had done was not going to succeed in the future. So he needed to innovate. He needed to innovate his way out of the situation. And so the, the IBM's uh, Watson, I, I don't know the guy's name, but the son of the founder of IBM began to innovate the company. And he said, we're going to go in a different direction. And so IBM at the time was hiring all of these mathematicians for the sole purpose of trying to find out what could be done with personal computers. So this is, this is, I mean, we're so acclimated. Like we got it in our, we got a computer in our, I got a computer in front of me. You know, we got it on our phone. The computers, and they didn't know what computers could do back then. They had no idea. 
And so IBM was trying to figure it out. So they're hiring all these mathematicians. And so he came and said, hey, I'll come for a year and see what's going on. He said when he went to IBM, he realized this is what he wanted to do. He wanted to work with something that no one had ever worked for. He wanted to do, discover something no one had ever discovered. And so he ends up leaving his secure job at Yale. And I'm sure his wife, if, if his wife had a vote, she would have said, no, you're not doing that. You know, but he, he left his job at Yale and he went to work for IBM with no guarantees. He's working for a startup. So you got to understand what this guy's working for. Like right now, you're like, oh, you got a job with IBM. You think you're going to work there for 30 years because the company's established. In 1950s, they weren't established. They weren't like they are now. They were, it was precarious. They didn't know if the company was going to succeed or fail because they were completely changing it. So he goes to work for this company. And while he's there, he begins to take mathematical equations and program them into the computer to get the computer to show graphics back to him. He's one of the founders. He's, without a doubt, compute, there was no such thing as computer graphics. And then he starts doing all this experimental research into all these older equations that he knew there was validity to, but they could never do the calculations because the calculations to those equations were infinity. But he's like, well, let's try it on the computer. And as he discovered that these formulas came back to him, they began to show shapes. And one of the things that he, that he discovered is he, he, he named it fractal geometry. So geometry up until this point, I'm doing a whole series on this guy, it seems. It was nowhere near as detailed in the first service as this one. But you're getting a lot of details on Benoit's life here, okay? Right? So he, he, he begins to dis- take all these former equations and, and out of those equations discover something. And what he discovered was a problem that mathematicians always had. Mathematicians believed that math was outside of the structure of, of nature. It was an entity all its own because they couldn't. So in other words, from geometry, you have triangles, you have squares, and you have spheres, but they could never, they could never get a geometric shape for a cloud or they could never create a mathematical equation for a cloud because of the shapes and everything. What he would do is he would take these equations and he began to discover fractal geometry. What he discovered is not only can you map the cloud, you can map the tree. All of these shapes that are in nature can be mapped and can be calculated. No one knew this before. This was, this, and this just happened in the early 2000s. But this is what was fascinating to me. And so I was trying to put this cool video up, but I couldn't get the video to go for a service. And I crashed the whole system, so we had to restart the computer for a service. And anyway, so service was a little late. And everybody's like, what are they doing? What are they doing? Well, the pastor just crashed the computer by trying to put a video in, but no, nonetheless. But in the video, what he shows is that everything incre- it's all based on triangles. So everything is based, it begins with the shape of a triangle. All of creation is based on the shape of a triangle. And it's a replication of this triangle in these different forms and patterns. It's absolutely fascinating. You say, well, what's so fascinating about this? Well, what, is, what does this mean to the believer? We, we know a triune God. So, he, so basically he's saying that creation was designed in the principle or the beginning principle of three. The triangle. We're made in God's image. We're created in his likeness and all of these things. And so it's a a replicated pattern in in sequences of three over and over and again. Boom, 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 boom. It just starts laying out. And he does this crazy stuff. What happened was this discovery, and I'm totally butchering it. I'm making it sound way too simple. But this discovery led to changes in statistical physics, meteorology, hydrology, geomorphology, anatomy, taxonomy, um, neurology, linguistics, information technology, computer graphics, economics, geology, medicine, uh, physical cosmology, engineering, chaos theory, echophysics, and metallurgy, and social sciences. This guy's discovery, 
he discovered this, wrote a book in 1982, and I'm going to connect all this back to you. He wrote this book in 1982. It was only in the early 2000s that they actually began to prove his theory. He wrote it. He said, this stuff's fact, but everybody dismissed him. They thought, this guy's, this guy's a loony. And it's like only in the early 2000s. And I was watching this interview, and this doctor was saying that the discovery of what this guy has done is going to radically change science. He says, we don't even begin to understand what we've just, what we've just experienced. And they were showing the mapping of the liver and how they can now map the liver based upon what this guy has done. And they've seen all of these different things about how the human body... I mean, they're godless. I mean, me, I look and I say, that's Jesus, you know? I'm like, that's the Lord. But they're just discovering something that had been there all of the time. And what I want to share with you is that that compelling drive that this man had and the decisions that he made in sacrificial, some of those decisions, in order to follow this compelling drive that he had, led to this discovery. The second thing I want you to know is he didn't do it overnight, right? So we're talking about dreams, visions, and destinies. It didn't happen overnight. He researched it for 35 years. This went on for 35 years before he actually published the book. And then after he publishes the book, Happy Day, for 20 years, he's criticized. How'd you like that? You come up with something that's amazing, and then everybody around you dismisses it and tells you it's not, it's not true. So he had to endure 35 years of process to learn this. And then he had to endure 20 years of criticism before anybody celebrated him. And at the end of his life, of course, he's incredibly celebrated. But to me, like, it's not just the dream, the vision, the destiny part of this. And you can look on Wikipedia and you can look up fractals and you'll see a lot of the images and the designs and the patterns. And you'll see that it always begins with the triangulation. It's, it's crazy stuff. And it makes perfect sense because God creates in pattern. We're created in his image and likeness. Are we not? And he's a triune being. And they're discovering things about the human heart. And the human heart is created in this. And they're like, wow, we've never seen the heart this way before. We've never seen the internal organs this way before. And so what science is almost being forced to see it is God has created it, which is completely wild. So my point to you on that was not to say, oh, look at this guy, even though his life is worth looking at. My point to you is to encourage you that this guy made compelling decisions. He made decisions based upon something that he had a longing to do. He had a drive to do it. There was nothing around him that supported the idea that he had. He kept doing it. He did it for 35 years, was criticized for another 20, but what he brought to the world revolutionized the world. You have a vision, you have a destiny, you have a calling on your life, and that calling is relative. You may never do what this guy Benoit Mandelfort did and impact science at that level, but you can impact your family, you can impact your neighborhood, you can impact, you can impact things in a micro way, you can impact things in a meta way or a macro way, and God willing, you can impact things in a global way or a meta way. But the point is, is that you all have a compelling drive that's on you. Another lady, there's a ministry that's here, it's called His House. Anybody ever heard of His House? His House, His House Children's Ministry. Sharon, I knew uh, Jean, the founder, and she founded it with just a handful of people. And she got, she felt like God had given her a vision for it. She said, all her life, I felt like somebody's got a long, she had a longing to work with these kids and help these kids. She never actually ever saw herself doing it. But over a period of decades and years, she sewed into it and began to do it and follow the dream or the vision or the drive at great expense to her. And now it's probably the largest uh, foster care uh, thing in Dade County for sure, probably in the state of Florida. 
Okay? And they've been in her Christian ministry that's been able to partner with the state. All these wonderful things have happened. But she made great sacrifices based upon a compelling drive. It, I'm sure if you asked her, what do you want to do with your life? It wouldn't be that. You know? Yeah, I just want to live with a bunch of foster kids for the rest of my life in a house. and everybody, Because that's how she did it. She had them all in her house before she was doing it. And I'm sure it was like, it was not easy. But you have, a clear, you have to have a clear sense of direction. You have a destiny. You have to realize that you have a destiny. God has something for you. There's, there's the difference between a dream and a vision. A dream is what you see. A vision is what you see. So a dream is a desire. Man, I have this dream. This is where I want to go. You have this vision. Man, I've seen this. This, is, this looks so cool. What a, what a destiny is, is it's a compelling drive or a compelling call that oftentimes does not always agree with what you want. You don't always want to do that. You feel compelled to do it. That's another story. So he made intentional decisions in the direction of that purpose. He made those decisions sometimes at great cost. And he did not quit until he accomplished it. That's important because a lot of people will not make sacrificial decisions. So look, very few people achieve dreams. Very few people accomplish the vision. Even fewer people actually activate anything related to destiny. And the reason that we oftentimes don't relate to destiny is because of the sacrifices or the decision process that's involved in that. And then also it's the the amount of time that it takes to sow into that and to develop that. But it is there for you. So I wanted to show you with that life. And this is kind of like, that's why I say this message kind of flips. I felt like all week long the Lord was telling me to share this story. And even, you know, last few days I've been like going, how does this story fit into what I was going to say? And the Lord just kept saying, share the story, share the story. So I'm like, okay, I'll share the story. I'll share the story of Benoit Mandelfort. So hopefully that encourages some of you and it gives you some direction. So like that's half the story is that God has a dream. He has a vision. This is how it works. This is what it looks like. This is what destiny looks like. This guy had a, he, from the time he was a child, he had this, anybody feel like they had something on their life from the time you were a kid? You, you feel that way? You feel like you have this, there's just, there's just some, from the time I was a kid, you know, that's where this guy's coming from. As he's going back to the time he was 14 years old when he just really, he said, I I just had this longing. And I was willing to do whatever it takes to satisfy that desire, that longing. So the second part of this message is relating to not just dreams, visions, and destiny, but dealing with your greatest barrier. So last week we talked about creating a dream. So if you want to look to last week's message, it talks about how to, you know, how to put the dream together, what God has told you, and how to put some nuts and bolts around it and, and kind of go from there. But today I just want to share with you something else that prevents you from getting moving. So part of this message is to get you moving. And the great, say this with me, the greatest barrier to my future is my past. But I want you to say this, but it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. People don't move because of their past. They live in the past. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows. You know, we have something tragic that's happened to us. We have something that's painful happened to us. We've made mistakes. We've made failures. And then we lay down in those mistakes and we lay down in those failures and we get stuck in a moment. We're never willing to move forward. That's a lot of time. So what we want you to do is we want to push you towards the dream of God. We want to push you into your future. We want to compel you to go higher. So we're going to talk about steps to overcoming your past. If I say, hold the chair. <laughs> say, Pastor Kevin is my friend. He needs, needs to help me. So number one, the steps to overcoming your past. The first thing is you have to acknowledge your mistakes. You have to acknowledge 
where you failed. You have to look at things that have gone wrong. And so James chapter 3 verse 2 says, We all stumble in many ways. So all of us have done imperfect things. All of us, none of us have done it, per, have done it perfectly. And one of the ways you acknowledge your mistakes is you have to begin to take personal responsibility for your life. Your biggest problem, ready, is you. It's not your neighbor, it's not your wife, it's not your husband, it's not your mom, it's not the economy, it's not this, it's not that. Your biggest problem is you. Well, you say, what do you mean? The decisions you make, the attitudes you, you have, the people you associate with, all of those things are the things that are the things that are holding you back. Quitting is not an option as a believer, but change is. We have to change. Say this, the bridge from where I am to where I want to go is called change. That bridge has a name and it's called change. We have to change. We have to accept personal responsibility. Here's a Twitter for you. You can never become who you were created to be as long as you continue to blame others for the person you are. You will never become who you were created to be as long as you're blaming everybody else for the person that you are. I didn't say, so let me be clear. I didn't say that bad things didn't happen to you. I didn't say that you didn't come from a broken past. I didn't say that people didn't hurt you. I didn't say that you have, you have opposition or adversity in your life. All of that's true. All of that is true. But people have overcome far worse adversities than you have. People have overcome far worse circumstances than you have. Everybody's got a story. We all have them. You know, where you succeed, others have had, and it's been a clear shot for you. Somebody else has struggled greatly in that area. Where you're struggling, somebody else seems like have had, has, a, has had a clear shot. Regardless, we can no longer blame the things around us or the people around us. We have to take personal responsibility for our lives. And we have to begin to change and make decisions that are different than the ones that we have, we have made. We have to change our associations a lot of times. That's another painful thing. You have to study success, not failure. So let's talk about failure. Peter, Peter failed. Can we get a witness? <laughs> if anybody failed, okay, let, how'd you like to have this one on your resume? This is, Peter is the epic failure of all time. He denied Jesus. Not only did he deny Jesus, he is recorded in the Bible and it's taught throughout the world that Peter denied Jesus. So when people go, Peter, oh yeah, isn't he the guy that denied Jesus, right? So that's an epic failure. But the issue is, is that Peter's epic failure did not keep him from his destiny. Peter was the one who spoke on the day of Pentecost. He was the one where 5,000 people, 5,000 God-fearing Jews coming out of the synagogue while Peter was proclaiming and it came to Christ. Peter began to plant churches in his life. Peter lived a life that was, not, that, was, that was up to the standard that he had been created to. And he did not allow this failure to keep him from it. You cannot allow your past failures to do it. The only one stopping you is you. So let's just look real quick at what made Peter, Peter fail. The first thing that makes us fail, because it's very similar to we're, we're, we're humans, is self-sufficiency. Mark 14, 29. Peter says, if everybody leaves you, I'm not going anywhere. Self-sufficiency. That's our biggest problem. I got this, right? I'm going to give you a story that God has taught me. This has been probably one of the grandest lessons of all of my life. And it may seem simplistic to you, but it's very meaningful to me. And if you'll understand what I'm saying, I pray it will be meaningful to you. As Jesus says, you know nothing. You don't know anything, Kevin. My life verse is apart from him, I can do nothing. And then he has taught me over and over again, 
I am the best idea you could ever have. And what does that mean? What does it look like? It didn't, that does not mean that I don't have any knowledge. That does not mean that I don't have any ability. That does not mean that I don't have any kind of thing that could make my life go forward. All of that's true. But as Christians, we're not to trust in our knowledge. We're not to trust in our associations. We're not to trust in our experiences. We're to trust in Jesus. And so in saying all of that, it's like, okay, Lord, here's the circumstance. What do you want me to do? And he's going to go, okay, I want you to go back and I want you to remember what I did for you there. And I want you to draw faith from that. I don't lead with my ability. I don't lead with, the, with my relationships. I don't lead with my experiences. I lead with him. So all of that stuff is set to the side and is used as an asset in your life. And it's not the primary driver. Does that make sense? What happens a lot of times as Christians, this is what we do, we, because we feel like God tells us something and it's our job to figure it out. It's our job. Oh, I got I to gotta put it all together. We either, don't, we, we either will not start because we don't have what we perceive as the tools to start, or we do start thinking we've got it all figured out. You have to partner with him every step of the way. Peter's problem was self-sufficiency. He should have said, everybody's going to leave you. They're all going to leave you. The sheep are going to scatter. Well, what do we do, Lord? That would have been the wiser answer. The wiser, the wiser thing that Peter could have done was ask a question. If they're going to strike you and we're all going to scatter, then what do you want us to do? How do you want us to handle this? What, what's, what's the instruction here? But instead, Peter's response was, I've got this. All of these minions may leave you, Lord, but I, surely I, Peter the Great, will never leave you. And we all see what happened. The other thing that made Peter fail was it was fatigue. Peter was running in his own strength. Hello, can I get a witness? Fatigue makes cowards of us all. Jesus came to Peter and said, are you, st- are you not able to pray for an hour, Peter? Are you still sleeping? So he was worn out. He was using his own juice. He was sleeping in the hour of prayer, as somebody would put it. And what happens when you're, when you're worn out and you're fatigued? And you're trying to do something in your own strength. You're always going to make a, you're just going to make a mistake, aren't you? Can I get a witness? Anybody here do that? So what happens? Peter wakes up and he draws his sword. What? The guards are here. What? And he starts whipping the sword around. Cuts off the servant's ear. You know, so just, it's what happens to us. Like, we're all worn out. What? And we make these rash, impulsive, compulsive decisions when we're tired. Right? Husbands and wives, you need to give each other a break when you're tired. We don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Well, I don't either, but I go to sleep when I'm worn out. And we, we, we call a timeout and say, we'll pick this up in the morning. You know, so it's like, because the more tired you get, the more accelerated you get and the more afraid it gets and the emotions come out. And you ever said something when you're tired that you probably wouldn't say if you weren't? Right? You ever rip somebody's head off when you were tired when you probably wouldn't have done that when you weren't? It, come on, we're all here. So that was one of the things that happened. The, sec- the third thing that happened with Peter is he followed at a distance. He was too far away. He kept Jesus at a distance. The Bible says this, Peter followed at a distance, Mark 14, 54. You know, we, well, we're called to draw near. We're called to come close to Christ. One of the issues that we have is that we, we do not understand how loved we are. We do not understand the level of access that we actually have to him. We have a level of intimacy. Intimacy is into me you see. God wants to be intimate with you. He wants to into you he sees. And he wants you to be intimate with him, which is into him you see. 
He wants that level of interaction with you. And what, where, where the fall through is or where the rub is in, in our lives is that we don't believe that we're truly loved. I'm just going to put it out there. If you, if you knew that you were truly loved, you would draw near. If you knew you were truly loved, you wouldn't avoid him. You would walk with him. If you knew what he had for you, you wouldn't avoid him. You would draw closer to him. The problem is not that he's keeping something from you. The majority of the time we believe lies that are in our hearts that tell us somewhere in the subconscious that we're not loved, somewhere in the subconscious that we're not accepted. These are lies that are incepted in us. They're incepted in us through guilt, griefs, right, or grudges. These lies get incepted into our lives, and we believe lies. We believe that God doesn't love you. We say it here all the time. Who told you that? Who told you Jesus doesn't love you? No, seriously, who told you? Who told you you've gone too far? Who told you that? Who told you he doesn't have a future for you? Who told you that? He didn't tell you that. So Peter followed at a distance. You need to draw near. You need to press in. The fourth thing happened with Peter is he feared other people. This is why Peter failed. This is why we fail. This is why we don't go forward in our lives. As he denied Jesus again and swore, I don't, he swore, I don't know the man. I love it. I love, Bible, I love the Bible and how frank it is and how blunt it is. So Peter cussed. Yes, Peter cussed. He cussed. He swore. Peter? Yes, Peter, the longshoreman. I love Peter. Peter's like one of my favorites. I love him. Peter's like a man, right? A manly man. He knew the Bible. If you read what he wrote, you read, you read his letters, this dude knew the Bible. But he was a longshoreman, right? So he's a fisherman. I always imagine Peter's missing a few teeth, like a hockey player, right? You know, because he's been in a few bar fights. That's, that's Peter. Oh, I know. You guys are seeing him as St. Peter. One of, those, one of those people who glow on the walls of the church. That's not who these guys were. Peter didn't like kids. You know what I'm talking about? Pushing people away. That's Peter. Get these kids out of here. I'm serious. Lady, take your kid home. Jesus doesn't have time for your kid. Get out of here. Peter was the one pushing the people out of the way. Lord, who touched you? Peter's up front. Get out of the way. Let him through. Get out of the way. Somebody touch me. Peter's like, the whole crowd is touching you, man. What do you mean somebody touched you? That's Peter. Sweat on his face. Peter's the one sitting at the table going, hey, man, I got a sword. You know, he's like opening up his coat to show his Glock, you know, like, look, don't worry. If anything goes down, I'm Peter. I got a sword. That's Peter. This is who we're talking about here. This isn't St. Peter with the Bible, you know, on the on the wall of the church. Oh, St. Peter. Oh, these are real living people. He denied it again and he's swearing. I'm telling you, I don't blankety blank know him. How many times I got to tell you, I don't blankety blank know the man. Rooster crows. And Peter goes away and weeps bitterly. Right after he got the F-bomb out and said, I don't know him. The rooster crows. He feared what other people thought of him. People don't move forward in their lives because they fear what other people will do, what other people do. It doesn't matter. Listen, we're all going to stand before the Lord. All of us are going to give an account of our lives. Even as Christians, you're saved, you're born again. All of that is true. The Lord's going to say, what did you do with your inheritance? What did you do with my name? What did you do with the Holy Spirit? What did you do with the life that I gave you? What did you do with it? And we are not judged in accordance to, 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 to condemnation. We're judged in accordance to reward. And so we're all going to stand before the Lord. And so it doesn't matter if you say, well, Lord, I could have done more. 
But, you know, I was just too afraid what other people thought of me. You know, they wrote internet blogs about me and they, you know, and people didn't like me and, you know, and, and, and all of these things. It's just, it's just like, I just don't, I don't know. I, I didn't do it because of what other people thought of me. You're going to miss out. You're going to miss out on your future. You're going to miss out on your destiny. You're going to miss out on everything that God has for you. If you allow other people to influence you to such a level. This is what, how Peter, Peter denied Christ, left Jesus, because again, it's all self-sufficiency. And he was worried, he was too human in his approach. He was worried about what other people thought of him. So you have to recognize where the problem lies. Then you have to humbly ask for forgiveness. This is easy. We get this. Lord, forgive me. We understand this part pretty easy. We get this. But I'll tell you a guy, this is again another epic failure. David was an epic failure. Have you read the life of David? This dude epically failed. Epically. Right? He's killing, murdering guys, woman. He's sleeping with a woman, murdering her husband. He's doing all of that. He's, he's going down. God tells him not to go over to the enemy. He goes over to the enemy, acts like a crazy man. He just did a whole bunch of non, just crazy stuff. David was a failure in a lot of senses. Again, we learn from this because we too fail. And so David writes the Psalms. And so he writes Psalm 51. And so here's a prayer of forgiveness. And in this prayer, I'm just going to point out eight things that you can do when you're calling on the Lord. First thing he says, he says, have mercy on me, O Lord. That's a good one. That's always a good place to start. Lord, have mercy on me. Because of your unfailing love and your great compassion, wipe the stain away. Anybody want the stain wiped away? Come on. It's not just the stain of sin from not being born again. It's the stain of guilt. Right? Of all my wrongdoings, wash away my guilt. Cleanse me of my sins, for I am haunted by my failures. Can I get a witness? Anybody haunted by their failures? <laughs> I cannot forget the evil things that I have done, but I know you love me completely, and I know you love me honestly and from my heart. So see what is in me. Help me to see what is deep inside of me. There's another one. Right? Have mercy on me. Wipe out the stain. Wash me. Cleanse me. Help me to see. Create in me a new heart. And renew my renew the spirit in me. Renew your right spirit in me. And then give me the joy of salvation. So when you're praying, all of those things are possible. All of those things are given to you. Your sins do not disqualify you. We're going to talk about that. Then the third thing you got to do is you got to forgive yourself. This is where it gets hard. This is one of the biggest reasons why people are stuck. They can't move forward is they cannot forgive themselves. These next two areas are crucial. You can't forgive yourself. You feel unworthy. You feel unloved. You feel you failed. You feel like I can't ever do this again. You feel like what do people think of me? Who cares? First John 3.20 says if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows all things. In other words, if Jesus forgives you, why are you holding anything against you? I'm going to help you. Everybody want to help forgiving yourself? You ever have a hard time forgiving yourself? Anybody? No, only me. I'm the only one that does. Okay, thank you. You know, I know we're Christians and we don't we don't admit anything in church, but nonetheless, you know, <laughs> I'm going to help you to forgive yourself. I want you to say this: I choose to forgive myself for anything and everything that I hold myself guilty for. The Lord does not condemn me; therefore, I will not condemn myself. Now, here's the rub. Here's the key. Right here, I'm going to give you the key. I did the best that I could in the situation I was in with the tools that I had available to me. That does not mean that what I have done has been right, but it means that I can understand it. And if I can understand it, 
then I can forgive it. That's right. The basis of all understanding, the basis of all forgiveness is understanding. I tell myself all the time, I hold myself to no standard higher than the Lord's. His standard, I don't try, I tell myself all the time, I did the best that I could in the situation I was in with the tools that I had. And somebody goes, you were stupid. And I go, I know. And, but I was doing the best that I could in the situation I was in with the tools that I had. I was dumb. I didn't have the tools for that, but I did the best I could. And you're the same way. It doesn't mean that what you did was right. You see, there's no acknowledgement that's saying, oh, that behavior was right. Because the, no one's saying the behavior's right. But what we are saying and what the principle is teaching you is just because it's wrong doesn't mean you can't forgive it. And you can forgive it on the basis of understanding. Under, you, if you, that's why we can't forgive. Is, I don't understand why I did that. Oh, man, why, what did, why do I keep doing that? And you just beat yourself up with this lack of understanding. You just have to tell yourself. You, you, it'll help you forgive other people too. Yeah, I didn't like that, but they did the best they could in the situation they were in with the tools they had. I'm not saying, you know, I, I, do, I, I live that. I, I live by those rules. If you ever do inner healing here, which we do, that you're going to see that that tool is applied consistently. Because guilt, griefs, and uh, grudges are the biggest things that hold people back. You have to forgive yourself. How do you forgive yourself? By understanding. You just did your best, dude. With what you had in the circumstance. You, maybe you could have done it differently. But nonetheless, the play's over. You did your best. I understand it. I forgive. I move on. That's it. And the other one is forgiving others. People have hurt you. Can I get a witness? Yeah. Right? Life is a world of pain. Full of broken people doing broken things to each other. Broken systems. Wounds and pains. We get a big hang up here. So I'm going to try to pause just for a moment to help you understand this. Because this is a very huge... How many knows forgiveness is a big part of Christianity? Right? Jesus talks a lot about forgiveness. So forgiveness is a pretty big part of what it is that we are and what we're supposed to do. Forgiveness of others. We beat ourselves up on this one. We believe that just like... we'll Okay, so here's what it looks like. Sunday morning, we come in here the Holy Spirit. We're like, wow, so good. Jesus is so good. Oh, I just forgive all those people who ever hurt me. Oh, I feel free. I feel free today. Thank you, God, that I can forgive. Monday morning rolls around. And you hear that song that reminds you of that person. And you're like, Arr! you hear their name or you hear somebody's name. Some memory triggers that up and you're there. And then you start beating yourself up. You're like, oh, I must not be a Christian. What's my problem? I've got this issue with forgiveness. I'm so weak. Why can't I forgive? You can't forgive because you can't forgive at that level because you've been wounded. So let me tell you what God expects from you. You are free in heaven's eyes with an intention of forgiveness. So okay. So it looks like this. Somebody wounds me greatly. I intentionally, I choose to forgive that person in spite of the pain. It doesn't mean that the pain goes away. The pain is still there. So when God is looking at our lives, he's not looking at our lives going, well, I'll know you forgive as soon as that pain's gone. And if that pain's not gone, then I don't believe you've ever forgiven them. So you need to keep on trying and keep on growing in your forgiveness. It doesn't work that way. Heaven's, the only thing heaven is looking for is the acknowledgement of forgiveness. What happens to people, we have to understand how the soul works. You're a soul, you're a spirit, soul, and body. Your soul is your mind, your will, and your emotions. We get wounded at the emotional level. And so when we're wounded, pained at the emotional level, what happens is that affects your mind and that affects your will. So somebody's wounded you at a deep level from your childhood or something in that way. Your mind begins to tell you lies all the time. You're not good enough. 
You sit there and you quote 50,000 verses. You program yourself. You tape it. You have confessions. All of that stuff's good. But yet, as soon as you stop confessing, immediately the lie comes to you and says, you're not worthy. You're not good enough. Well, who told you that? That, that is something that's an effect within the soul. The wound has happened within the soul and the mind of the subconscious is now responding out of the wound in the soul. Christians don't like to talk about this. We get all weird. Oh, that's not true. We act all self-righteous and arrogant and we are the most screwed up emotional people on the planet. There is no group of people more screwed up at the level of the soul than the believer. Write it down. It's true. And we get all weird. Oh, don't get demonic, Pastor. You talking about something soulish? Yes, I am. It's called the restoration of the soul. David said, he restores my soul. What does that look like? What does that mean? It's inner healing. It's wounds. It's actually, I'll give you another one. It's called deliverance. I know there are churches in this country that haven't spoken that word in a millennia, but it's called deliverance. Deliver us from evil. The wounds that the enemy is using to manifest lies against me. The wounds that the enemy is using to compel my behavior in a way that I don't. That's why you do things that you don't want to do. It's out of a wound. You're attracted to people. You don't, you're like, what? Your mind is like, why are you attracted to this dysfunctional person? There's a really perfectly sane person over here that's interested in you, but you think that they're nothing and you're attracted to the screwed up individual. Why is that? Oh, let's get real. Could it be that there's a wound in the soul? Could it be there's a lie that you believe? You're not worthy of that. You're not worthy of a healthy relationship, so you've got to go to a dysfunctional one. Could that be a lie in the soul? No amount of discipline will change this. You can discipline yourself until the cows come home. How do you know? Because I've tried. There is no amount of discipline that will get you to not believe a lie that's incepted in your soul. You have to remove that lie at the root of the pain or it will not go. And we get self-righteous and arrogant. Oh, well, if you were just more mature. What's your issue, dude? That's what I want to say. What's your issue? What's your issue? We believe in holistic healing. We believe in spirit, soul, and body. The restoration of the spirit, soul, and body. We believe in holistic healing. You have to forgive others. And it's hard for us to forgive others. God knows this. He knows what happens to us when we're wounded at a deep level. He knows. So he's not expecting you to just alleviate yourself of pain that you cannot remove. Is anybody here? Do you have pain that you can't get rid of? Have you ever been wounded in a way where you can't get rid of that pain? Maybe I'm the only guy. Maybe it's just me. You know, I I do therapy on myself then. That's okay. But you're wounded in a way or you see yourself responding in dysfunctional ways and you're going, what is my major malfunction? I know that's not what I should do. I know that's not what I should say. But I do it. Every single time I dance like a puppet. (laughs) Self-righteous Christians, we don't know, Pastor. I'm telling you, I get, you know how much flack I get when I say stuff like this? I get the self-righteous, arrogant, religious Christians that want to judge it. Every time. I'm like, go your way. Blind leaders of the blind. Go your way. Go fall in a ditch for all I care. I'm going to the mountain. <laughs> it's true. Come on. This is about helping people. This isn't about making everybody look good. We're about helping each other. We have to have help. So what my point is, is that you're going to, don't, don't condemn yourself because you're still carrying pain from a wound. 
Don't condemn yourself because you, you have intentionally said, I forgive them, but the pain comes up and you, have, you feel like you're having a hard time with it. God accepts your desire. He sees that your will is to forgive. But he also understands that some of that is being manipulated by the pain that's in you. And that manipulation, that pain will go away when you heal it. It will. You can be healed in the soul. You can. So what is God expecting from you? You know, we all act like we're not hurt. Oh, I don't, I don't, I just don't feel that anymore. I don't feel that anymore. Really? Really? Can I walk, can I follow you around for the week and see if that actually does not bother you anymore? Right? We pretend. We, we deny the things that have happened to us. Hurt, when hurt has happened, hurt has to be healed. When something has been stolen from you, there have been people that have had their innocence robbed. They've been stolen from. They've been violated at a very deep level of their personhood. There has to be a restoration there. That doesn't happen by default. It has to be spiritually applied. You're not going to be whole without it. God understands that. You can live with it if you want to. He's not making you do anything. But what I'm trying to get you to do is understand and stop beating yourself up over something that you cannot stop. Just You just realize, that's my hurt talking. That's my pain talking. God has accepted my forgiveness. That's my hurt talking. That's my pain talking. God has accepted my forgiveness. Because that's what's true. Have the mindset of truth. Your past doesn't disqualify you. Sin's been paid for. Come on. Sin's been paid for. Aren't you glad? Somebody got to get happy in here. Sin's been paid for. Somebody got to get happy out there. Sin's been paid for. Sin's been paid for. The sin of offense, which is harmatia. The sin of missing the mark, harmatano. What does that mean? Before you came to Christ, you were an offense to him. What does that mean? You've pushed him away. The Greek word for offense is pushed away. When you come to Christ, the offense, the distance between you and God is closed. So sin has been removed. You are now accepted in the beloved. He loves you. You are now his child. You will never be separated from him. He's always glad to see you, but you still sin. That's called missing the mark. So sin, and theologically, sin is two pieces of a, of, of, of a root word, same root, but nonetheless, they're different meanings. Haramatia is to offend, and it means to push away. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've pushed God away, right? It, the Greeks would use it as the hero falls. That's what it means. You were created heroically, but the hero has fallen. How has the hero fallen? They've pushed themselves. Listen, when you push God, God's not moving. You're moving. That's why man fell. Man went, get away from me, Lord. And back he went. God didn't go anywhere. That's why we talk about the fall of man. Because man pushed God away. That's the root of the offense. When you come to Christ, Jesus is now Lord. You've come back. Teshuva, repentance. You're now accepted. But your mistakes in our lives, those are the harmatanos. Those are the stupid things that we do. Those things don't disqualify you. They don't separate you from his love. This is important to know. What can separate us from the love of God? This is why we, this is the mentality that we have a lot of times as Christians. We think we sin, therefore God doesn't love us anymore. Who told you that? Oh, I sinned last night, Pastor. I just got, you know, I got to go tell God I'm sorry. You know, uh, he does, you know, I hope he still loves me. I hope he, you know, I, I just hope, I hope, I hope he doesn't like strike me dead when I walk in the room. Who told you this? Who's telling this? None of that is true. You're loved and accepted. I will be angry with you no more. What can separate you from his love? There is no condemnation. 
But what you're missing, what your choices do is disqualify your destiny. You're making choices. You're missing the mark. God says, here's your destiny. Here's your purpose. This is the direction of your life. And you're making sinful choices that are moving you off the mark. That's what it means. What's the mark? The upward calling in Christ Jesus. The thing that God has for you. What he has for your home. What he has for your future. What he has for your business. What he has for your kids. We make sinful choices that, move, that cause us to move off the mark. But sin's been paid for. So what do we do? We appropriate the payment. Right? Jesus solved the world's sin problems. 1 John 2, 2. And how do you appropriate the payment? Through repentance. It's real easy. So you should never be discouraged that any mistake you have ever made disqualifies you. He works what? Everything out to the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Does he not? So what disqualifies you? Nothing disqualifies you. Only, the only person disqualifying you is you. The, because of your belief system, your attitude, your understanding of things. Ignorance is not a bad word. Ignorance doesn't mean you're stupid. It just means you don't know. You have to, second thing is you, why you shouldn't worry about your futures. You have the Holy Spirit. Happy day. Ready? I'm going to give you another one. This is another one. There's been some hold the chair moments here in the last few weeks. So we're going to do another hold the chair. Here's hold the chair. Hold the chair. Ready? Why don't you say it with me? Jesus has no confidence in me. Just going to let it marinate. Jesus has no confidence in me. But he has absolute confidence in the spirit that he has placed in you. You see that? There's no confidence in you. This is why when he tells you, he's like, tells you to do the impossible. You're like, me? I don't know, Lord. He's like, this, I, I teach you stuff that he's taught me. This is interpersonal Jesus time with Pastor Kevin that I've had with the Lord. And I've struggled with him against things. And he said, Kevin, I don't have any confidence in you. And I'm like, what do you mean? You don't have any? I'm like, well, I don't think I have any confidence in me either, Lord. So I'm glad we're agreed on that. But he goes, I have the confidence in the spirit. That is within you. The Holy Spirit wills and does. Apart from me, again, you can do nothing. I can do all things through Christ who what? Strengthens me. How are we strengthened? In the inner man. By the power of the Spirit. This is how this stuff works. So you just need to be okay with it. God, when God calls you to do something, he's not calling you to do it. Or he's not sending you or telling you to do something that you actually have the ability to do. You don't. So just get over it. Every time God tells you to do something, it's something you cannot do. You cannot do it. Forgiveness. You cannot. You cannot. Anybody have an impossible dream? God, God tells you to do something. Most of the time we don't start because it seems too impossible for us. Because it is. He's telling you to do something that you can't do without him. That's how he likes it. He wants it like that. You have the Holy Spirit. I can do all things through Christ who's praying for me. Happy day. There's nothing impossible for you. You need to be okay with your brokenness. And his, his strength is perfected where? In our weakness. You've got to be okay with that. I'm okay. Okay, I don't know what I'm doing. I tell the Lord all the time, I don't know what I'm doing. You know what I tell him? This is me. I'm, you know why? Because I know nothing. You see, I don't just teach you this. I actually live this stuff. I actually practice this. <laughs> and the Lord's like, okay, this is what I want, Kevin. I want that direction. See that direction there? I'm like, okay. I'll go. Here am I. Send me. But I don't know what I'm doing. And the, and the Lord will, and he'll say, okay, let's do this first. Okay, Lord, you know, now what do I, you know, I'm always asking questions. The wisest person, the wisest Christian in the world will ask questions. You got kids? Anybody with kids? Our, our, the questions our kids ask freak us out. We're like, would you please stop asking questions? 
Jesus is not that way. He loves questions. Holy Spirit loves questions. He gets excited, right? We get like, oh my gosh, how far is up? Are you kidding me? We're going to ask me that, you know? God gets excited, so ask him questions. God's goodness to you is not based upon you. This is another happy day moment. Good for you. Your future doesn't disqualify you. Your past does not disqualify you because the goodness that God has for you is not based upon your performance. He saved us not because of the good things he did, but out of his mercy. In other words, say this with me. Jesus loves me. Come on, say it. Put your hand on your heart if you have to. Jesus loves me just because he wants to. Do you understand that? For no particular reason at all, he just loves you. He just loves you. Scripture puts it this way. He sets his affections on you. He looks at KB and goes, I love that dude. He sets his affections on you for no reason at all. He chooses and he has made the conscious decision. The father has made the conscious decision that whoever comes to Christ is forever and eternally accepted and loved. You are loved and you are forever accepted, accepted in the beloved in Christ. He's made that decision. So when he looks at you, it's always love. He's always in a good mood. doesn't mean Jesus agrees with everything you're doing. This is important. It's not like Jesus is like, now listen, Kevin, I just really agree with everything that's going on in your life. He loves you as the person. And in that love and intimacy as the person, if we will let him, he will partner with us to change and transform areas of our life. But his goodness to you is not based upon you. The calling on your life cannot be, is unconditional. God's got a calling on you. It's, okay, it's, say, say this with me. Occupation is what I do for money. Right? It literally means what you occupy. Right? I occupy this cubicle because I need to make money. Right? So that's your occupation. But there's another thing called vocation. Vocation is calling. It's the Latin word vox. Right? So to speak. You have a calling. You have an occupation, but you also have a voice. You have a word. You have a, something to bring to the story. The narrative that God is writing in the earth in this generation. You have a something to contribute. You say, what is that? I don't know. I don't know. That's for you to discover. But when you start discovering, it will start unfolding to you. Nonetheless, that calling on your life, you can't, it's, it's unconditional. The gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. They cannot be withdrawn. Almost done. I'm with you. Hold on. We're, we're getting there. Okay? You have to have, this is, this is important. This is another key piece too. You have got to have the attitude that Jesus can give you a future that is greater than your past. You have got to have that, that no matter what, where, or when, the Lord is hope. He is eternally and forever hope. I don't care how shot out it is. I don't care how broken it is. I don't care what you did to make a mess of it. I don't care what anybody's done to make a mess of it with you. Christ is the hope. Jesus will bring you out of the worst situations. If you will let him. If you will let him. He has a hope for you that's greater than your past. That's beautiful. Say, do you got a verse? Yeah, I do. Forget the former things. Isaiah chapter 43. Yes, I got one. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. It's springing up. Perceive it. Look at what I'm doing. I'm doing something new, Hadassah, in your life. Forget all that stuff. Forget all that damage. Forget all that past. I'm doing something new, Mimi. Look around. Perceive. Look what it is that I'm doing. I'm doing something new. 
I'm bringing you out of the old. I'm giving you something new. Perceive it. Look for what I'm doing that's new. You say, I'm lost in the woods, Lord. You know what he says? I'll make a way in the wilderness. No problem. You say, I'm in a desert. I don't have any water. He says, I'll make a stream in the desert. All in Isaiah. My Lord, my life is a wasteland. You have no idea. My life's just completely shot out. He'll repair the wasteland. He'll rebuild the former foundations, the Bible says. Have good, be of good cheer. Be encouraged. There's nothing that should stop you. There's nothing that keeps you from what God has set before you. Get the dream. Get the vision. Be persistent. Don't give up. Keep pressing in. Ask lots of questions. And realize, don't believe any of these. Don't believe the lies that the enemy tells you. God is forever for you. The goodness of God is the basis of all theology. No matter what, the cornerstone of all biblical thinking is that God is good. No matter what I see, no matter what I understand, no matter what I think, no matter what I believe, I'm the problem. The truth is, God is good. No matter what the circumstances are telling me, God is doing a new thing. No matter how lost I feel, God will give me a path. No matter how dry I am, rivers will come to me. No matter how big of a wasteland I'm living in, God will restore it and God will rebuild it. And that's the truth. That's right. Here's one memory verse, and we're going to close. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That's your memory verse. You want a memory verse? I'll give you one. Put it on your window. Put it in your car. Right? Remember that God, there's no condemnation. That is that when it says there is now no condemnation, that is an active word. That word now is like this. Now, 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 now. It is a present active tense, which means it is an ongoing word. So when the Bible says there is no, there is now no longer, there is right now no condemnation. It's saying now, right now, forever. What what is now? Was that the last now? No, that's the current now. That's the next now. That's the next now. You're not ever under condemnation, ever. If your heart condemns you, God's greater than your heart. Amen? Amen? All right. If you're watching this by live stream, we're super grateful for you guys watching this by live stream. Hey, 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 hey. So I just want to tell Elevate family out here, we're so grateful for you. Your faithfulness during this time has enabled us to go forward in a way that we haven't been able to go for before. And we've had 1,200 through plays on our teaching last week. That's not views. That's 1,200 through plays. Through plays. So that's 1,200 people that we haven't been able to reach through the messages, that through the faithfulness of this church. And you're one of those 1,200. Hey, listen, we want you to know that Jesus loves you. We want you to know that God has something great for you. And if you don't know Christ, today's your day. If you've never given your life to Jesus, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Not next week, not next year, not I'll think about it. It's today. Today. And then it goes on to say, don't harden your heart in rebellion. Don't have a stiff heart. Don't say, no, I don't want it. God has so much for you. And the Bible tells us that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Christ is Lord, you'll be saved. You say, how does that work? The Bible says this. Jesus right now is standing at the door of your heart and he's knocking. And there are people I know that I, because I've been, I've been doing this for a long time. Your palms are sweating. You're getting sweat on your brow. You're wanting to turn it off. Don't you turn it off. Your, your heart's beating. That's the Lord knocking at the door of your heart. He's knocking. Jesus said, if I, I behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you'll open it, I'll come in. And what does he say? I'll commune with you. I'll be friends with you. I'll be in relationship with you. And so the Bible, it always relates to the heart. You say, I know Jesus. There's a difference between knowing Jesus and having Christ in your heart. So you must believe in your heart. You must confess with your mouth. And we do it here together at Elevate. And we're going to pray with you. 
Right? Every Christian comes to Christ the same way. We all come the same way. Or some version of this prayer that I'm about to give you. But it's straight from the Bible. If you pray it, Jesus is going to do it. Just open your heart. Just say this. Dear Jesus, I believe you are the Savior. And I need a Savior. I may not understand this, but I choose to believe it. And so I open my heart to you, Jesus. And I ask you to come inside. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to heal me. I ask you to restore me. And I ask you to repurpose my life. All that I am, I give to you. All that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that, we celebrate that with you. Yes, we celebrate you. One more blessing. God command, This is a blessing God commanded that it be spoken. And so if he commanded it then, we'll take it on now. And he says this, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. And may the Lord be gracious to you in every way. And may he give you peace. May you forever live within his favor in Jesus' name. Amen. God loves you. We love you. Have a wonderful week.